Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 434. This program is dedicated in loving memory of Binyamin Moshe Ben Svi Hirsch upon his yard site on the 25th of Tevis, and Teve Bas Devber Thaler upon her yard site on the 27th of Tevis, and also for Fua Shlema for Tzvi Ben Tova Thaler. For many long and healthy years. So this week begins a new month, the new month of Shvat. Rosh Chodesh, of course, is a major event. It's a new cycle of the moon, a new moon. We sanctify the new moon every month, and the Jewish people count by the moon. We count by it and we're similar to it. Because just as the moon waxes and wanes and goes through changes, the Jewish people throughout history have always waxed and waned. And even in the worst of times, upon the point where you thought they would disappear, like the moon, only to be reborn again. As a matter of fact, it's the theme of this week's Pasha as well. One of the first things Hashem says to Moshe when he tells him that now the time has finally come that the Jews will leave Mitzrayim, he comes and shows him, This is the month, this is the month that will be your first month, the month of Chodesh, Chidush, renewal, and in this case, renewal in the context of redemption and Geula. So the Jewish people's renewal after their long, arduous, and difficult exile is symbolized by the moon. So the same moon, when we look at every year, every month, when we bless the moon, is the same moon Moshe Rabbeinu saw 3,335 years ago. When he stood in Mitzrayim and Hashem said, this is HaChedesh HaZelachem. So this month is the month of Chedesh Shvat. That was HaChedesh Nisan, the beginning of the lunar year. We're now going into the Shechei Shvat, so let's talk about that. It's also Pasha Boyes I just mentioned, and we'll discuss that. And always in the context of Chassidus Applied, Teirim Elosh Nehira, what is the directive, the guidance, the personal lessons that we can apply from these days and these significant events, our personal, psychological, emotional, spiritual lives. So let's begin with the Shvat itself. So, so firstly, as I said, Rosh itself has a lesson every month. The lesson that life is cycles. Exactly like the moon. The sun, even though the sun goes through shifts, but it's far less discernible and recognizable. And above all, the sun is constantly shining. The moon goes constantly through stages. The real reflection of what life is all about. And... The, the, even when it may seem, as I said, the, that the moon is waning to the point that it disappears, only to be reborn again with a new level, a new level of energy. That's why Chodesh is called Chidush. It's like a new moon. But it's not the same moon, even though technically, physically, it's the same moon, but it's a new renewal of the moon. And, and its purpose is to radiate in this earth. So it's a new renewal of that radiating, in this case, month of Shvat. So that itself has tremendous lessons in life. But what's specific about Shvat? So we know like every Jewish month, every month has its sign. 
it has its tribe, and it has other symbolism that we can learn from. So the sign, the mazel of Shvat is Dali. Dali means a, water, a pail, a pail that we draw water from. In English, it's called Aquarius, the water drawer. Dali. The, the tribe that it corresponds with, well, there's two different opinions, but generally we say it's the tribe of Yosef. Another opinion, depending how you count, is the tribe of Osher, Yosef, or Osher. Is the 11th month of the lunar calendar. Next month will be Adar, and then comes, of course, the new year, the lunar year, Nisan, so it's number 11. And also has a Tziruf. Every one of the months is another Tziruf, another another permutation of the Yudke Vovke. In this case, it's Hamad Timurenu Vihoyaloi Murasi Yir Kedish. So the first four words are Roshatevis of Yudke Vovke, but in a different order. So every month has its Tsiruf, which means is divine, so to speak, channel through which the energy of that month comes. So briefly, what do we learn from these different symbolism? So let's start with the water drawer, the pail. Reshchei Shvat is also mentioned in the Torah itself, in the beginning of Deuteronomy, the, the beginning verses. It says, Mesha. These are the words that Mesha spoke. And when did he begin speaking them? Reshchei Deshvat. In the 11th month, on the first day. That's the month of Shvat. The name Shvat itself was the names that they, when they went up, in Babylon, these names were added in most cases. But before that was known by the numbers. So it's the 11th month, the first day, that's when Moshe began to speak. And for, 20, for 37 days, he would speak, meaning the whole Sefer Dvarim. I'm not saying he spoke every second, but I mean during those 37 days is the whole Sefer Dvarim until Moshe's passing, his talkus, the outside, on Zion Adar, which is 37 days from Rishchidosh Shvat. So it says, On this day, he explained the Torah. And Rashi says, Because he already explained the Torah before now. What was the addition? Now he was preparing them for the next generation, preparing them for the future. So he took the Torah and translated and explained it in 70 languages, which means... This was technically languages translating, but also how to apply Torah in every language, in every idiom, in every paradigm. That's what a real leader does. And Torah would be the guide and the blueprint with which the Jews would travel throughout all of history till this very day. Torah, Melosh, and Hera. So Mesha prepared them. Torah is compared to Mayim. Ain Mayim el What does a, a leader do? He draws water. That was Moshe's role. We spoke about that a few weeks ago. Why Moshe was called by a name that Pari's daughter gave him, and not the name that Amram and Yecheved gave him. That he was drawn from water. What's the connection to his life? Because Moshe came from the world of water, the world of Almadiskasi, the hidden worlds, the superconscious worlds where the Torah comes from. And from there he drew it into land. He bridged, he interfaced within the superconscious, between the transcendent and the imminent and existence. So Moshe is a water drawer. Dili. 
he draws the water of Teda, but doesn't just draw it, puts it into the pails that makes it available, like we learned in the Posuk, Elam Mishpatim, Shatasim Lefneim. These are the laws that you shall place before them, like a Shulchan Aruch, it says. Set the table for them. That's why the Shulchan Aruch is called a Shulchan Aruch. A set table, not just random foods and so on. A table that, when, that the guests who come to the table are ready to partake from the meal. In this case, the meal is tater. That tater should be presented in a way that's readily and easily accessible and digestible. So that's what a water carrier does. And that's what happened Rosh Chodesh Shvat. So the month of Shvat symbolizes this idea. It's also the rainy season in Israel. That's why, as they also say, Shvat, some interpret Shvat is connected also to heavy torrential rains. But Dali is also bringing water down into this world. And water is sustenance and life and nurturing, and in this case also Teira. So one of the themes of Shvat is this idea of drawing water. Now we all have a mission within us and we all have to do this mission. That's our mission. Just as Moshe was God's mouthpiece, Misam Pela Adam, and he drew the water of Teira into this world, we too have to do the same, that whoever we come in, we come in contact with, whoever we encounter, we are water carriers. We need to be bringing them water, sustaining, nurturing, enlivening, energizing. That's what water does, refreshes. It's necessary for existence itself. The human being is made up of 75% water. The earth is covered in three quarters of the earth is two, two thirds of the earth is covered in water. Because water symbolizes Dasas Hashem, as the Rambam writes, divine knowledge. And indeed, when Mashiach comes, we say the world will be filled with divine knowledge as what? As the waters cover the sea. But specifically, in, in Teira itself, it's the Primiasa Teira. Mayones Chutza. Yafutza Mayonesecha Chutza, as Mashiach told the Balshemtiv. When he asked, When will you come? When your well springs, well, water, pails, drawing water, carrying water, will be spread everywhere. So we are water carriers. We are distributors. Which also connects to Ba'ir, Ba'ir Satera Azeiz, the Shivim Lashen, as the Rebbe always emphasizes that this month of Shvat is also the month of the Hilula of the Friedrich Rebbe and Yud Shvat and the beginning of the Rebbe's leadership. And one of the things that Rebbe always points out that the Friedrich Rebbe instituted was translating Torah, especially Chassidus, in all languages. The Rebbe, of course, took it to a completely other level. But a language is besides actually translating, it also means explaining it. Say, means explaining it in a language, even if someone doesn't know Hebrew, not just the language of Hebrew, but the spirit of Hebrew, to translate Chassidus and Torah in general in every possible language, which was Moshe did in Rishchei Shvat, through from beginning Rishchei Shvat, I should say, and the Friedrich Rebbe, of course, did in his work, and the Rebbe did it, as I said, in a much more expanded way. So when you say Mashiach will come, will be Oz Epech Elam Sofa that all the nations will speak with one clear language, the language of God, the divine language. The business of the world will be only to know God which is compared to water, as waters fill the sea, and we are the messengers, we are the carriers of this water, this Dili. Yosef, the shaven of this tribe, of course, is clearly the connection, the Friedrich Rebbe's first name was that, Yosef, 
And that's what Yosef did. He fed, he sustained Mitzrayim, not just Egypt. He sustained all the world and during the Great Famine. Saved the world. As he said, that's why he was sent there. And you can imagine, of course, it was physical food. But Yosef added more than just physical food. He taught, he inspired. Which again is the theme of the month of Shvat. So the lessons are very clear to us all, what our mission is, what we should be doing. The Rebbe points out that the Hamer Temarenu, when I said Temura, which is the Siruf, so that was also what the Yesuf, it says, Yesuf Avayli ben Acher. And God should give me another child. So Chassidus explains it. Samach Tzedek, the Rebbe cites it very often. That Yesuf Zinyan is also to take the Acher and make the Acher into a Ben. That even if someone is on the other side, that's not yet connected, revealed way to holiness. You should transform them. And that's Tamura, transforming. Tamura means to exchange. To take even the negative parts, even the chutzah, the outer parts, and also bring water there. Bring water even to the parched land where Tzomalachonavshi, Kamalachopsodi, Eretz Siyavayiv, a land that is dry and arid and thirsty, to bring water to that parched land and refresh it and revitalize it. So all this comes together in the mission of the month of Shvat. Just to finally finish the circle, we also know in the middle of the month is Tu B'Shvat. According to Shammai, Shammai, actually Rosh Hashanah is a Shchei Shvat. But the Halach is like Hillel, Beis Hillel, that Tu B'Shvat, and Tu B'Shvat is what? Rosh Hashanah And what are Ilonis? They are they sustained by water. That's the key thing that keeps them alive. So there you have the connection as well, not just water, but water that makes things grow and blossom and thrive. And back to Parshas, to the, to, back to the story of Moshe, Parsha Boy, talked about the new moon. Moshe was Minamai Mishisil, and the renewal of the new moon. In this case, the renewal of this concept of vital, vitalizing through water and through carrying water. You know, it's a beautiful imagery to recognize, see yourself, we're water carriers, but not in a simplistic sense. We're distributors of the divine waters to every person we come in contact with. So we have the significance of this month and what lessons does it offer us of what we should be doing. Let's move from this to Pasha's boy, which is this week. The Alter Rebbe says, love mid the tzayt, to live with the times. So what lessons do we learn from Pasha's boy? So Pasha's boy is a very interesting chapter. You would think that after reading two chapters about the very dark Gaulus, there'd be one more chapter maybe to conclude the Gaulus, and there'd be a new chapter. Gula, no, in the same chapter with the darkest last plagues, the darkest moments before the redemption, right in the middle of the same chapter starts, as I said, and the story of that day, that middle of the day, on the 15th of Nisan, when the Jews marched out of Mitzrayim, proudly, with their heads upright, after a long, arduous gullus. So why did the Torah not separate the two? Why bring the deepest pain together with the deepest joy? And the answer lies in the very spirit, the meaning of the Golos Mitzrayim. 
You may recall a few weeks ago we spoke about why the Ramban, the Ramban calls the whole Sefer Shmei Sefer Agoula. And two and a half chapters are not about Gula. Because the purpose of Golas is only Gula. You read the Tzedek Chaliyah. When, when Hashem tells Avram Avinu by the Brisbane Absarim that your children will be in a land that's not their own. They will serve there. Then he says, It wasn't, it's, not, it's only a half a story, the first part. The point is to create and, and forge a nation that would become indestructible. As the Maral says, they would experience freedom and no longer would they ever be able to be in servitude to any human being or anything that's man-made. So turn them into an a immortal nation that would then march to Sinai, Matera, and receive God's mandate and become the people of the book that would bring God's message, the water of Tera to the entire world until Mashiach comes. That's the whole purpose of when I would take from Mitzrayim with a purpose to serve God at this Harazah, this mountain, Mount Sinai, and then march to the promised land and fulfill their mandate, fill them a mission of transforming this material world into that the Torah will talk about later in this book. A Mishkan, a dwelling place, a sanctuary for God. Between the heart and soul of each one of us and the physical and, and by extension the entire world. So that's the whole purpose. So what better way to indicate that by saying, no, the Golos, Gaul is not a second step. It's part of the Golos. It's the purpose of the Golos. It reveals the deeper purpose. So as we finish the Golos, we go right into as the moon seems to be disappearing. No, it's reborn, a new moon, a new life, a new nation, a new birthing, as Yecheskel compares Yitzhiya Smaitzrayim to a birthing of a child after goal is compared to a pregnancy. But the pregnancy is in order to give a birth. And even though there are birth pangs, but it's in order to lead to the birth of a new child, of a new entity, of a new reality. And that's exactly what Yitzhiya Mitzrayim is, as the second half of this chapter talks about. So there again you see a tremendous lesson. That even when sometimes something appears dark, and appears that a setback, or appears like even hopeless, no, it's all part of a journey. It's a cycle, it's a journey, and never forget that. And we have to see it through. The example of the, of the Baal Shem Tev, of the Shvindeltrep, Swindle literally means swindling staircase. Spiral staircase is called a swindling staircase in Yiddish. Why swindle? Like a swindler, a swindler? Because when you walk up a regular staircase, you see the destination. Maybe distant, but it's right up there. Straight line. A spiral staircase keeps turning. So every time you have to make another revolution and turn your back to the destination, the higher you all go up, you turn the back to the point when you're about to reach the apex, the top, you have to turn your entire back. And you can think, hey, I'm not closer to my destination. Don't be deceived. Keep on going. Sometimes you're right before the destination. So every situation in life is a part of a journey going toward Geula, toward Yitzhiz Mitzrayim, which 
In Avedah means to go out of all our inhibitions and fears and insecurities and constraints and everything that inhibits and limits us. So anything that you feel limits you is only a stepping stone, a catalyst, a springboard to propel us. Sometimes you need to do that. In order to jump forward, you have to pull back. The moon disappears in order to be born in a completely new way. Okay, that's a general lesson of of uh, Parsha Boy, the combination of the two events, the Golas and the Gul. There are a bunch of specific questions that came in. Let's go through them. One question was, what was the spiritual meaning behind the ten plagues? I don't want to go through all the ten plagues. I've done that in previous classes. You can look it up on MeaningfulLife.com. Just look up the ten plagues. Went through all the ten According to Kabbalah, they correspond to the ten spheres. So the plagues are actually all the lo'umazah. These are all the, the negative aspects of the ten spheres, or in different language, they're the antidote. That when a person in some way pollutes or toxifies, chokhmah. So the tikkun for that, cause and effect, is dam. Mak is dam. Bina, svadeya. There's actually two orders you can go. You can go from the top down, from Chachma to Malchus, or Malchus to Chachma. So I've discussed this, and just look it up and told him in uh, MeaningfulLife.com, you can find all the details. But overall, I'll say this. In Judaism, there's no concept in Teda, reward and punishment is a misnomer. People misunderstand what it means. God has no reason and need to punish us. He creates human beings with flaws and then comes to punish this isn't a principal in a school or a sadist, God forbid, who's just looking to punish. It's cause and effect. When you put your hand in fire, it gets burned. Party and the Egyptians chose to enslave the Jews at their own volition. It brought in the Rambam that even though it was decreed that the Jews would be there, but either they, according to the Rambam, with two opinions, the Rambam and the Ravid, why were they then punished? When Hashem already told Avram Avinu, because number one, they went further than what was asked of them. They punished the Jews. They afflicted the Jews, not just the minimum. That was their choice. Second answer given, because no one, the Hashem never said, which Egyptian? He didn't say you. You don't have to be involved. He said, in general, it would be a nation, a country that would enslave you. But you have personal choice. But regarding our concept here, as a result of that, there are consequences. When we misbehave and do something that goes against what God put into the laws of Torah, it's not just a transgression. God said, I want something, you didn't do it. Why did God write these laws? Why did he give these laws? Because this is the best and healthiest way for you and I to be healthy human beings. It's like an engineer of a machine. And he gives you an operator's manual. and says, to use this machine, you have to do so and so. And don't pour water in it. And don't do other things. And if you do, I'm not going to punish you. There's effect, there's consequences. If you use it right, the machine will work well. If you do something destructive, the machine will break. Teda mitzvahs, mitzvahs comes from the word connections. Aveda comes from the word disconnection. Havoda. Like displacement, dissonance. 
A mitzvah connects us to who we are. When you give, do chesed and you give charity and you're kind, it actually feeds, besides helping another person, feeds and nurtures the chesed within you. It's no different than exercise or nutrients or vitamins or minerals that the body needs. When you do something to hurt someone else, God forbid, besides hurting the other, you're also hurting yourself. You're not living up to who you should be. It would be like eating something poisonous, something toxic. When the Egyptians behave in such an atrocious way, there are consequences. The ten plagues are consequences. Each one corresponded to another way of, of another, another crime and atrocity of theirs. And it was a form of refining them and teaching them that there's a God in this world. And you have to live up to that. So that's the general idea. The same thing in our own lives. No one should ever know of it. But when something happens, it's not a punishment. God is punishing. It's a consequence of one's behavior. Now you'll say, what about all the wicked people who don't seem to have a great life? So this is already a big question of God's mysterious ways, and we don't always see the, the, the effects. But that doesn't mean there aren't any effects. Sometimes you see righteous people, and you don't see them being rewarded in the sense of cause and effect but that's because our eyes are limited but the end of the day is refined behavior brings refined results and unrefined behavior brings unrefined results to put it mildly that's the general theme of what the ten plagues represented okay what is the significance of using a lunar calendar instead of a solar calendar As we said, this is the beginning of the story, so one significance, and one point I made it before was because the moon represents renewal, and that's why that's that becomes the symbol of all geula and renewal, and also in the future, symbolism for the Jewish people. Like the Gemara says, the Moira cotton, the small luminaries, the moon, Yaakov cotton, David Hua cotton, that the greats of the Jewish people were always compared to cotton, cotton in the context of humility. The moon is symbolic of humility. And many other significance of the moon. But we all also know that since the Torah says that Pesach should be in Chedesh Aviv, in the spring month, and the seasons are determined by the solar cycle, not by the lunar cycle. So Pesach is always on the 15th of Nisan, that's the lunar, the full moon of Nisan two weeks after the new moon, after HaKedosh HaZelechem. But it also says it should be in the spring season. The lunar cycle, as we know, is 11 and a half days approximately shorter than the solar cycle. So the first year, okay, it would be fine. But the next year, the lunar, the, the lunar year would end 11 days earlier. And then 22 days, and then 33 days approximately. At some point, Pesach would no longer be in the spring, it would be in the winter. And if you keep going, it would be in the autumn. And then it would end up in the summer. And then it would go back to the spring. So based on that, Chazal learned. We derive from that, you should make a Shonamu Beres. Shonamu Beres is a leap year. Adding every 19 years, seven leap years, which keeps the balance. Adding a month of other, around 30 days, which more or less makes up for three years. 30, it's 11 and, and some 
It's a little less, but it ends up being every 19 years it keeps the balance between the lunar year and the solar year. What's the symbolism of that? The symbolism we've discussed also just briefly, because while we need the changes of the lunar and the refresh and the renewal, we also need consistency. And the sun represents consistency, like a tree. It needs consistent, solid roots, but the tree also has to expand and grow. So the moon represents the growth and the movement and the cycles and the ups and downs, waxing and waning. The sun represents steadfast movement, that it's constantly, not just movement, but it's based on a steadfast foundation. And we need both. We need a strong foundation, but also expansion and the growth and the changes and the transformations that the moon represents. That's briefly the story. Now, continuing, Parsha talks about the different, uh, uh, Hashem tells Moshe how they should prepare the Korban Pesach. So someone asks, is there a connection between sprinkling the blood of the Korban Pesach on the doorpost and mezuzahs? Yes. Yes, there is. The doorpost always represents the entrance and the exit between a person and the world around them. In this case, they were living in Erva Sa'aretz, in a decadent, world, a decadent country, which was symbolized in many ways, but especially during the time of the, the Golas, Mitzrayim, that the Jews were enslaved. So now when it came to Geula, Shem said, I need to distinguish between the dark and the light, between the Jewish people. And I said, so pay, put on the doorpost, like mezuzah, that will protect you. So these homes won't be affected when he gives permission to the mashkis for the plague of the firstborn. So that's the basic connection. A doorpost, because that's the place that connects between the inside of your home and the outside of the home. This, the, the avoid of it, in our case, so today we don't bring a korban Pesach, but the symbolism is still there, as we know by the Seder. The korban Pesach represents an offering called Pesach. Because Posach, because Hashem leaped over those homes. Pesach is the representation of transcendence, leaping over, not just doing things regularly. To leap over the mountains, to jump over the hills. So in the same context, when it comes Pesach, and the truth is every day we have Zechit Sis Mitzrayim, but especially on Pesach, is to remember not just we protect ourselves from the darkness out there, but we connect korban from the word kiruv, closer, but closer in a transcendent way, which is the symbolism of this idea, and it's on our doorposts, like a mezuzah, that reminds us, Shemer Dalsis Yisrael, the Ebesh to protect the homes, the doors, Shem Yishmer Tzeschu that everything that goes in and out from this place becomes sanctified, because you sanctified your home. What would today, God commanded us to slaughter sheep for the Korban Pesach because the Egyptians worshipped sheep, and this act showed a defiance and a separation from the vile, corrupt place we were stuck living in Golis. What would today's equivalent be to show Hashem we are separate from the Golis we are currently in and ready and prepared to leave immediately with Mashiach? Could it be the celebrity worship that is prioritized in the Western world? Should we burn down Hollywood? Symbolically only, of course. I do not advocate any acts of violence. Well, yes, like in all cases, 
Sheep is, of course, the physical symbolism of their deity, worshiping sheep. But the fact is, anything you worship, money, power, materialism, the golden calf of our times. And that's what Pesach is all about. It's not just to be freed physically from prison, but to free ourselves spiritually, not to be bound by pagan worship. And that includes anything that humans worship that is man-made or men themselves. So everybody has to translate that in their own way. But that's exactly what Pesach represents. And that continues the theme about the carbon Pesach I mentioned before, the blood, on the sprinkling of blood on the doorposts. Another thing we learn in this parsha is the mitzvah pidyon haben. What is the mitzvah behind? What is the meaning behind the mitzvah pidyon haben, redeeming the firstborn? In Pasha Boy, Hashem says all male Israelite firstborns are sanctified. What exactly does that mean? Are there advantages and privileges for firstborns? I'm a firstborn. Are people doing an Aveda by not showing me extra respect? Am I allowed to skip the line at the deli? Okay. Well, Pidyan Aben, like everything, is yes, an honor, but it's also a responsibility. The general mitzvah of Chod, as the Chinuch says and others for him to speak about, is the idea of giving of the first to Hashem, like the idea of truma, the idea of bikurim, I should say, also from the word bechar, the first fruit. What do you do, the first fruit? As soon as you come into that, it's a sulky, bring the first fruit. In Avedis, like in the morning, same way the ani, as soon as you wake up, your fresh first moment, give it to God. Thank you for giving me, returning my soul to me. So you have the idea of a b'chad in fruit, you have a b'chad in the humans, you have a b'chad in behema. The offering, petarechem. As well as it is, as I said, in animals. So it all represents the idea that Rambam also brings it, the end of Hilchus Temur, I believe, or Hilchus Me'ila, that a Jew should always give from the best Tashem, Like we learn from Hevel, in contrast to Kayin. So that's the general meaning. And the best here, the Bukhar is the first. So you right away acknowledge the first. This doesn't mean a Bukhar is superior to siblings. It just means there's something about the firstborn coming out of the mother's womb. And that's why we have a Pidyan Aben. Because in essence, the firstborn were always meant to be serving God. And the Bukharim were going to be the priests. It was only due to the Chet Eidel, they're not the priests that... So in order to redeem them, you give a coin. The whole procedure, the whole celeb- celebration of a pidyon aben. But the idea is that Bechor still remains a unique because you're constantly remembering God in your life. Now all children, all people are dedicated to God. But especially the first, when you do the first, like a Chanukah Sabayis, when you launch something, you dedicate the first. That's the significance. In the context of when the Jews left Egypt, so it says, B'ni B'chayr Yisrael, the Jews are compared to Abchar. So just as God took the Jews out of Egypt and said, now you are mine, so the mitzvah, Pidyan Aben, is connected to a reminder of the Jewish people being in general 
God's firstborn chosen and taken out of Egypt. And that's why the mitzvah is connected to Yitzhiz Mitzrayim. In our personal lives, the idea is, no matter who you are, but especially a firstborn, is to have more cognizance and more awareness that you're, you're the first that your mother gave birth to. You came out of her womb the first. It's a God's gift and blessing. And to take your life a little more seriously. And sanctify your life. And when Asad Lave, Mashiach comes, it says the Bechenim will, will resume their work as serving. All discussion, what about the Kehanim? That's not for here and now. Okay. And interesting also, Pidyin Aben, redeeming, the idea of the redeeming, like it says, Messiah. God redeemed the Jewish people, his children, his firstborn. A few more questions in general about this topic of Yitzhiz Mitzrayim. Someone asks, can we sue modern-day Egypt for reparations for the 210 years they forcefully enslaved us? I mean, you're asking, is this a tongue-in-cheek question? Is it a halacha question? Is it a legal question? I've never heard that any Jews throughout history came up with this idea. There are, there are stories in the Gemara about Achri Ken Yosef Remember, we did leave with great treasures. So you can say that uh, when the Jews left, the Bizas Mitzrayim was a form of reparations. They took the Kalim and they took... Was it enough to repay? Listen, how could you repay a Holocaust? There's nothing that they could do that would repay all the suffering we had. But I've never heard a modern-day form of... Uh, a class action suit against Egypt. I don't even know if it would be stand up, both in legal terms or in Torah terms. But I appreciate your thought. I think we have to look at it more based on the Pasuk that Hashem said to Avram, At the end of the day, that's our reparations, that Hashem, we turned to Hashem and Hashem said, look what kind of people you became. And I will reward you and I will repay you many times over for all the suffering that we went through. And that's why we are a people today, such a powerful people, an indestructible, immortal nation. That's how I would respond to that. Okay. Let's see here. What else do we have? What are some similarities and differences between the exile and redemption from Egypt and the current exile and future redemption? Okay. Hello, Rabbi. Regards from Woodstock, New York. According to the scriptures, what are some similarities and differences in the exile and redemption from bondage of Egypt and the current exile and future redemption, as I just read? Another person writes it this way. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I was taught in Yeshiva that everything that happened during Yitzhak's time will happen during the final Geula, but the difference will be miracles during the final Geula will be on a grander scale. So it's actually a verse in Micha. As the days when you left Egypt, I will show you wonders, and Niflois means even Niflois compared to what happened in Egypt, as the Tzemach Tzedek explains in the Rebbe sites in a number of places. So my question is, we are taught that we left Egypt with great physical wealth, and the Rebbe clearly said many times, the time of Gula is now. So where's the great wealth we are promised? I write this as I struggle each month to stay above water and pay my bills on time. Am I at fault for having magical thinking and believing the miracles promised to us that I was taught in Yeshiva are true? I await your informed answer, but please try to avoid the standard cop-out answers of, one, 
Ezu Asher Misamer Bechelke. Who is the, the wealthy one, the one who's satisfied with his lot? That doesn't suffice because if we were truly satisfied with our lot, then we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't ask for or need Mashiach. We would be satisfied with Golas Chaz Rishalom. Two, the full revelation of Mashiach isn't here yet until the Beis Amigdash. That's not an appropriate answer because in Pasha Boy it says our Egyptian neighbors gave us their gold and silver. If they gave it to us, it means we're still in Egypt when we recovered this wealth. We were still in Egypt when we recovered this wealth. And we got it before we physically left and crossed the border into the full Geula of Golas Mitzrayim. Also, we know things in the world happen gradually in stages. It's not dark out there. And then suddenly light. The sun slowly rises and over a two-hour period it gradually becomes light. Since the Rebbe said the time of redemption is here, it means the gradual processes have begun. And slowly, over the next few years, more and more miracles will occur, and then the process will conclude with the revelation of the Beis Amigdash. Since we were wealthy at the Gula process, as the Gula process began in Egypt, but before the Gula of crossing the Sea of Reeds, so too, the great wealth has to happen now at the beginning of the process of final Gula. Thank you for your amazing online Torah classes. I hope you will continue making these great classes even after we have the third Beis Amigdash because I learn a lot here Sunday nights, sometimes more than I learned in yeshiva as a child. And you don't scold me like my teacher did when I was caught eating popcorn during class. May Hashem bless you and your audience with tremendous physical and spiritual wealth and may be enjoyed in the best of health. Okay, so let me first respond. As a matter of fact, the whole seder, when you look at it closely, is structured that the first half is about Gulas Mitzrayim and the second half is about Gulas Lasselovi, Gula Asida. This is mentioned in the commentaries that Rebbe speaks about it. Because it's one journey, it's one process. When we say, because we're still going out of Mitzrayim. As long as there are any constraints and limitations, we're still on the journey out of Mitzrayim. So technically, we left Mitzrayim as I said, 3,335 uh, years ago. Not just technically, also spiritually. But the real finishing of that will be that's why we say that the future is a continuation and the conclusion of the Geul of Mitzrayim. Goyal Rishon, Goyal Achrin. Moshe is the Goyal Rishon, the first redeemer, and Goyal Achrin, Mashiach. We say also there'll be schidus yitzis mitzrayim. There's a piece in the Haggadah that talks also l'yemesa mashiach. We will remain l'hovi yemesa mashiach. So the point is, it's one longer, bigger story, different stages. Obviously, yitzis mitzrayim is more limited because at the end of the day, mashiach and the beis hamidrash hashlishi are not here. Or had the gula come, then there wouldn't have been the beis hamidrash hashlishi. The first beis hamidrash would have been the beis hamidrash. The final and the Gula Shleim will be Gula She'in Achareh Golos. Yitzis Mitzrayim was a Gula, a redemption, but afterwards came an exile, more than one exile. Golos Modai, Golos Poras, or Modai, Golos Bovel, Golos Edim. But Los Elavi Gula She'in Achareh Golos. That's why Shir Loshon Zachar. The song we will sing then, the final of the ten songs, will be masculine, be permanent. Okay. So that's some of the differences. 
Obviously, there's a lot more to say about this because the whole world will be transformed in a permanent way. After Yitzhiz Mitzrayim, we got the strength to do it, especially after Matan Teda and the Mishkan. But the actualization will be in the future. So that's some of the distinctions. You learn more Chassidus, you can see the details in it. If Yitzhiz Mitzrayim is compared sometimes to Eskafia, that's why Baruch HaSa'amd, the nation had to run away from there because they were, had they stayed a little longer, they wouldn't be able to get out of the pollutants, the toxins of Mitzrayim. So they ran more like a skafia, more like avoiding the negative, running from a burning building. Lo'asidlov in the future will be transforming the world, which is one of the reasons it will be permanent. It's not just escaping. Even though after Mitzrayim there was also stages and levels. But it will be complete transformation. So that is the answer to the first question. Similarities and differences. Because on the other hand, there's also something much similar. The idea of gula. Every gula, shem gula, that has the name gula on it, is connected. The idea of being redeemed from a trapped place. Question is, what level and what stage and whether it's permanent or not. Regarding the question you ask about wealth, so first of all, God should bless you and every Jew and every person with abundant wealth, more than you can even imagine, by all means. But let's not forget something. Even though you may be struggling, and as I said, no one should struggle, but compare our lives today to our grandparents and great-grandparents. What we call poverty today is not what poverty existed then. I'm not suggesting that people aren't struggling today, but I think it's important also to recognize the blessings and the gifts. And sometimes, Ein Balanes Makir Benise, person who's experienced a miracle doesn't always uh, recognize it. The comforts that we have, the standard of living. Again, there are people who are suffering, people can't pay their bills. But I think it's important to realize that we have plenty of Rechush Godel, even physically, comparatively speaking. Obviously, when Mashiach comes, there'll be wealth and abundance for everyone without any issues at all. Then we talk about a chush godl as freedom goes. No oppression. The ability, the, the life expectancy, medical breakthroughs, so many things that make life longer, healthier, easier. All these are tremendous blessings. So again, I bless you and I bless everyone to have abundant wealth. But to say there's no chush godl at all today, how could one say that? And then when you see your health, you see blessings of children and grandchildren and nachas. These are all tremendous blessings. So to say that we don't have, we have it. And to me, that's not a cop-out answer. That is the answer, at least part of the answer. And, um, and obviously there are stages and we'll, we'll continue to grow in this area. And abundance will continue to, ma- ma- to multiply for each of us and collectively. So that's the answer to that. So finally, one more question that came in regarding this Parsha and Gula and so on, is the Parsha, what is the, what is the connection between the theme of the second book of Teda and its name Shemois? The person writes, I guess this is a follow-up to what I spoke about. It makes logical sense that the Ramban called Shemois the second book of the Teda, the book of redemption, Sefer Gula, as I mentioned before and in previous programs. It's because the main theme is the redemption from exile in Egypt. Nachmanides' idea to call the Book of Redemption Koran 
And even the Gentiles accept this and call it the Book of Exodus in English. But how do we explain the original name of Shmeis, which is, which is translated means the Book of Names? How do names relay the theme of the book? So there's actually a sikha from the Rebbe, Chelik Tazayin, Shmois. I think perhaps also in Chelik Chafalaf, Tazayin for sure, you can look it up, where he asks this question, because seemingly he names us, El Shmeis, B'nai Yisrael, Shayyarda, these are the names of the Jews. And there's, so what's names have to do with it? But the Medrash interestingly says, why is it so important, these names? It says, because these are the names as they came down into Egypt, and these are the names that they retained when they left Egypt. So right there you see that the names symbolize that as much as they became part of, enslaved by Egypt, they did not lose their Hebrew names. Leshinu Ashmam. They retained their spiritual integrity, which itself is a go'ula, they could think. That's the medrash. But why names? What does the names represent? So the Rebbe speaks about a name, Chassidus says, as, as like a dual character. On one hand, you don't need a name for yourself. If you were the only person on earth, you wouldn't need a name. Names are for other people to call you. So it's an association with others. On the other hand, Chassidus says that a name is connected to Etzim HaNefesh. When parents give a name, because they have a mini prophecy of what's the right name for this soul. And that's why you see Chassidus brings that when a person, God forbid, is in a faint state, a comatose state, you call them by name, the name touches something at their core. So Lamayel and Chassidus, a name, shame. The shame of the Eberster. The Eberster doesn't need a name. He's beyond names. He's beyond descriptions. Every name is already a manifestation of God. According to his actions. When he's doing chesed, he's called kale. When he's battling a war, he's called svokes. When he's doing, sitting in din and judgment, he's called elikim. But a God is beyond name altogether. Even the name Anoichi, which is the highest of names, I. But even that is something of a name. On the other hand, we say, God and his shame are alone. So Chassidus explains, Shemay is Oyr. Oyr ain't sof. It also is ain't sof. It's a reflection of the divine manifestation. It's a divine consciousness. Atmos, beyond everything, is built in Mitzvah Nimtzah. You can't define by anything. Non-existential. We call him a non-existential existence. means he exists, but not in any way we call existence. And that's why there's no name. But he chose to manifest in a name. So the name is not just an external, it actually reflects God. When God says, Ani Havaya, or Eyasha Eya, or Anoichi, and even the names that are more correspond to his faculties or attributes or actions, they reflect a godliness. They're one with God. Name is connected. So what you see from that is that the Jews, when they went into Egypt, on one hand, even the external name also reflected their etzem. And that's what the goal is, that no matter what happens to you, externally, you retain your connection. And that's its connection to goal. Okay. There's a lot of focus on Shvat and on Boy. I want to cover a few other things, so let me just continue on here. Can Rabbi Jacobson explain the concept of Taras Avir? That means purifying the environment. Are we able to cleanse the spiritual atmosphere of a city by saying words of Teda and davening by heart? 
while we walk down the street or ride the subways. Can this spiritual purification also affect and manifest in a physical manner and make our cities cleaner and safer? One word, the answer is absolutely yes. Friedrich Rebbe, especially in America, spoke about Tadis Avir, Shnai's Balpeh, studying Shmishnai's by heart, so wherever you are, you can always remember and repeat words, sacred words. Tanya Balpeh, the Rebbe actually wrote a whole essay. It was called Shuvah Sabiyurim, Kevitz Labavit. The Rebbe had a moder, a column, where he answered questions, and so on, asked exactly about this. It's a fascinating essay. Because you would think, you know, there are things we can affect the world through action, through words even, but, he, but through thought. He talks about this at length, the idea of being metayr the avis. I suggest reading that Shuvah, he really answers this question. The bottom line is yes. We have the power to sanctify the, the environment. It reminds me, I heard once that the Friedrich Rebbe, when he was in 770, so he would go out on the porch, we would build the sukkah now in the courtyard to the side, the right side of 770, there's a porch, the second floor. It was covered with vines. They didn't see the Rebbe, but the Friedrich Rebbe would go out there. And he said once, People think I'm coming out to get a breath of fresh air. To get fresh air. No, I'm coming to refine, the refine the avir, the environment. That's the mission that all of us have. That wherever you walk, not just what you do or speak, you are always capable of refining the environment. The opposite is when a person just walks and then the environment affects you, or even if it doesn't affect you, you're not affecting it. This is the Hayyem Yem a few weeks ago about wherever you go, you have to create avir, an environment. And we have the power to refine that environment. It's a beautiful, powerful concept. Because it means even when you walk down the street, you think about something holy. You're somewhat sanctifying the environment that you're in at that moment. And it's permanent, because it's holiness. Holiness is permanent. So the answer is absolutely and it just testifies to our ability to affect, you know, physics. There is a concept today we know in quantum mechanics that the observer affects that which they observe. You're just observing it. You're not touching it. You're not moving it. How can an observation affect? But on a subatomic level, it does. So the concept exists before, before quantum mechanics, and that too was a big innovation, still hard to fully understand. But Alpitaid is not difficult to understand because God created the world for that reason. Just as Moshe Rabbeinu, when he looked at it, Yisrael, it affected it. When a tzaddik looks at something, it affects it. Our look, our thoughts, have an effect on the world around us. Just as to our responsibility and also as to the power we have. Beautiful power. I don't want to speak the negative. It also means a bad thought. It also has a negative effect, has an impact. The other way around. So we affect the vibes. That's why you see someone comes into a room, you sometimes feel the vibe feel uplifted, you feel this is a certain warmth, a certain spirit, ruach, in a home or at an event, and then sometimes you feel the opposite. So we have that power, and it's more than subtle, it actually affects things in the most powerful way, when you feel comfortable in a place, you act differently, you feel more relaxed, more trustworthy, more trusting, and so on. So that's a brief answer to that. Okay. 
Let us go. Since I've gotten so questions that come into my life is applied are usually questions about many different topics. But remember, I also do programs throughout the week. I do almost 14, an average of 14 programs a week. So, and it's for different audiences. So questions come in from those programs as well. And sometimes I address that here as well because it's the Te'el Sarabim for the benefit of everybody, might as well. So I have a program every Wednesday that speaks speak more in universal language. It's a universal audience. And um, different topics are addressed there. And of course, there are many videos, thousands and thousands of videos that we have up online. Just to share a good piece of news, we recently had a, a real uh, a positive explosion of growth that this month alone, we have over one million unique views of our videos, one million, which is a substantial number. So check it out. And of course, I would suggest you subscribe as well. To uh, We have two, actually two channels. One is MeaningfulLife.com, Meaningful Life Center on YouTube. We also have Chassidah Supplied. There's also a uh, YouTube channel that's that designated for this program. I would say more Chassidah um, language is used more than just universal terms. So in some of those programs, I've spoke about reincarnation. So I want to just um, read a few questions about that. Dear Rabbi Simon Jacobson, I just learned, listened to your talk on reincarnation posted on YouTube. You spoke directly to my heart. Thank you. What you are saying is absolute truth. I ask that you examine more deeply how our interaction with the tree of life and the tree of knowledge interact with reincarnation and the development of the soul while on earth and beyond. My own pathway in this phase of my soul is grounded in uh, Christianity and Believe Energy, founded by Romney, direct descendant of Guru Nanak and personal friend who has a huge soul mission to complete in this life phase. She talks about what you have spoken of, but also addresses the role of the tree of life and the tree of knowledge, knowing. Okay. Another person writes, Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I watched your talk on YouTube, Why Jewish Knowledge of Reincarnation Was Kept Secret, which answered many questions for me about Jewish beliefs about reincarnation. I am writing a book about the cosmology of reincarnation, which includes its origins, history, and a section about various reincarnation beliefs. My intention is not to go into detail, but to give an overview of reincarnation beliefs in many cultures, and hopefully people will want to dig deeper for what resonates with them. Do you have a paper that outlines Jewish reincarnation beliefs that I could include in that section? I'm not a scholar, but I have had many experiences about memories of other lives. I have done, I've done a lot of research about reincarnation. I've trained as a regression therapist after years of successfully using regressions to help me heal and come to a deeper understanding of why I chose the challenges in this life that I experienced. Now I am guided to write this book to share what I've learned. I appreciate any assistance you can offer. I read the article that you suggested. I like your metaphor about music versus the musical note and also the one about electricity versus the refrigerator. I'll remember those when I do my next class. My research has taken me beyond the context of that episode. I guess I should explain what I'm doing. I would like to give a brief summary of the Kabbalistic beliefs about reincarnation. I'm also doing the same about many reincarnation belief systems. My research so far about the Kabbalah comes from articles I've read by different uh, writers, Jewish writers, on websites, which gives a whole list of different ones, and, and 
a personal experience I had with a rabbi who helped me when I was remembering a past life. My takeaway is that the teachings of reincarnation were initially given to Moses at Sinai. The teachings show us that we are soul emanates from the Creator. We have free will in each incarnation as an opportunity to make corrections, tikkun, which bring our awareness to the aspect of the Creator within us. And the goal is complete transformation of all aspects to reunite us with God. Humankind may incarnate into one of three lower kingdoms, animal, vegetable, and and inanimate objects, depending on the nature of their negative activities. The Zohar says that we carry klipot, negative shells, of this incarnation, but also from previous incarnations, and the Creator prepares situations for us every day with the opportunity to make a correction that we need. Unlike Buddhism, Kabbalah believes in a soul, but like Buddhism, some beings will choose not to reunite with the Creator in order to help humankind. I was surprised to read that Kabbalah used Kabbalistic tools of angels, astrology, palm reading, and face reading to understand past lives. Can you explain? I also cannot find anything about why human beings need to make corrections. That implies to me that they forget who they are or went awry along the way. I cannot find anything about what the afterlife is like, what happens there, and how long between incarnations. Can you let me know if I'm on the right track and or, or, and, or answer any of these questions? I appreciate your help because I really want to do a good job sharing Kabbalistic reincarnation beliefs. Many thanks. Okay. Well, that was uh, a mouthful, and uh, thank you for sharing. I read it because I wanted to just show that the spreading of chassidah reaches many different circles, and that I find to be very positive. Obviously, I will respond to this more in detail, probably individually to the person, but I do want to say the following. In Judaism, the most important thing, emphasis, is responsibility. We don't talk about exotic things just to talk about sensational because it's very easy to escape into that world. It's all about responsibility. The concept of Gilgal and reincarnation, as you write, is very straightforward. It's the idea that God built in an immune system. Being people are not perfect. You ask, how is it possible? That's how we are. We're not perfect. And we sometimes don't fulfill our complete mission in this life. So it's not over. God will send that soul again to finish the job. It's like you send someone, you hire someone to do a job, they didn't finish. So someone later will come and finish the job. And that is a beautiful concept. Obviously it's best if you did it initially, but if not, that also explains generations, our connection to previous generations. It's an accumulative effort. And even in our time itself, right here, each of us has a part of the job. What is the job? To refine this world and gather, as the Kabbalists say, all the sparks, Think of like a book, a narrative, a divine narrative, a divine musical composition, but the musical notes are scattered everywhere. The pages, the words are everywhere. Each of us is allocated with a certain amount of sparks to gather together and reunite and reintegrate that the divine narrative should shine again, that the music should play again. When Mashiach comes, the future, that will be all realigned and even better than it was in the original, meaning when it was first created as Chassidus explains. So if a person doesn't do that entirely, reincarnation is the idea of Gilgal, is the idea that the soul returns to finish that job. That's the most important thing to keep in mind. So that's why our focus is not on where we come from, what reincarnation, the focus is what are you supposed to be doing right now? Are you living up to your destiny, to your calling, to your mission? That is the single most important point I would emphasize. And the rest follows from there. Of course, there are details 
and so on. But I don't want to go further into details. I just wanted to make that important important statement. As far as the tree of life and tree of knowledge go, it's also a little more intricate. I'll just say this. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve are placed in the Garden of Eden, there's these two trees. They symbolize two paradigms. Tree of life represents a completely aligned life, aligned to the life of God, aligned to the, aligning your life to divine life. The tree of knowledge is as the divine manifests in a world where there's good and evil, right and wrong. So it's still a divine creation, but now you have to choose what we call birurim, to refine, to separate, to distinguish what is right, what is wrong. So in the concept of re- reincarnation, we want to access the Teres Chaim, the tree of life, the Torah of life, but we have to do it in a world that not everything is always the path of life. There's also the opposite. And reincarnation comes to bring life even when the time when something someone has wandered off or in some way experienced dissonance from the tree of knowledge. That's a brief connection. And with that, we will conclude, even though there's so much more. Actually, I'm not going to conclude. I'm going to go to two follow-ups. One follow-up is Chassidus-based psychology. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, last Sunday, one listener mentioned a school for psychotherapy based on Tanya. Well, I'd like to share that there is such a school. Rav Ginsburg has one in Jerusalem and just opened another in Los Angeles. The courses are available online as well. Please go to the website inner.org and click on the menu, then click on School of Psychology. It's Chassidus-based Torah, and I believe the Rebbe encouraged the Rav in his work. Thank you for your wonderful, insightful class. So, yes, if it's, if it's out there, if someone has something. I think there's much more to be developed because we're dealing with um, a very diverse and a very comprehensive system. So I'm sure anyone has contributed, and I'm sure there are those. I think I mentioned that there are individuals that have are bridging psychology based on Chassidus. But there's a lot more work, and we will continue to develop this further as well. Expanding 770. You mentioned the expansion of 770. Personally, I think 770 should stay the way it was before Gimel Tammuz. Our kids and Mekurovim could recognize 770 from the videos of the Rebbe. Changing 770's look to something modern will affect this connection we have between the way we see the Rebbe in the picture and videos. What do you think? Did the Rebbe ever speak about it? I understood that the Rebbe was against any change that was made to 770's original building. Well, the answer is, that's exactly, the plans are not meant to change 770's original building. It will follow exactly the guidelines. The Rebbe did approve the plans. I mean, he gave instructions what to do, what not to do, but he approved plans. So we're not talking about doing something to change, so I don't agree with your statement based on the fact that I I think you misunderstood that they want to change the whole thing. No. They want to do exactly as the Rebbe insisted at the outset. You mentioned that 770 has to be expanded because Mashiach is coming. Shouldn't we expand 770 because we're in Golos? Sometimes in Tishrei, 770 gets so full that it simply becomes dangerous. Shouldn't the parties come together and work it out just to avoid Miron type of story, Chaz Shalom? When will someone wake up? Well, I, I don't want to mention negative things. You mention it, fine. That's not the reason. The reason is, yes, a shul should be expanded, not because of danger. It should be expanded because it should serve the people, and it needs much more room. When I mentioned Mashiach, I didn't say expand 770 because of Mashiach. We all want the Beis HaMikdash HaShlishi. But one of the ways to prepare is the Batik Mikdash, the Batik Mikdash Ma'at, the Batik Nisiyas, the synagogues, 
that we build and expand. As the Rebbe talks about in the base of the Bavel, the Kuntras, and when we build the Migdash Ma'at, and all of them will be will lead us to the will be carried, as the Gemara says, to the Gu'ula. That was the focus that I mentioned here. So bottom line is God bless those that are trying to do it. And um, meanwhile, the most important thing is to build the base Migdash Ma'at within your heart and soul, Rishchanti Besechem, and in every possible way to permeate our lives with godliness, with Teira Avedig Mils Chasodim, based Chabad, as the Rebbe says, the base Teira Avedig Mils Chasodim. As we shall be reading in the coming Parshas, as we go from Mitzrayim to Kriyas Yamsuf, to Matan Teira, and to Binyan Hamigdash, Ve'osil Hamigdash, Rishachanti Besech. Everyone have a very good week. This has been My Life Chassidus Supplied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. So we have a very good month of Shvat, Deli. We should all be water carriers, carrying the water of Teda, especially Primus Ateda, Chutza, to every corner of this earth. Be well. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chasidis Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chasidisapplied.com slash donate.